Chapter 1. The Descent. But you can't do it, you know, friend said to whom I'd applied for assistance in the matter of sinking myself down into the east end of London. Now, you'd better see the police for a guide, they added, on second thoughts, painfully endeavouring to adjust themselves to the psychological process of a madman who had come to them with better credentials than brains. I don't want to see the police, I protested. What I worth to do is to go down to the east end and just see things for myself. I want to know how these people are living there and why they're living there and what they're living for. In short, I'm going to live there myself. Ha! You don't want to live down there, everyone said, with disapprobation writ large upon their faces. Why, it said there are places where a man's life isn't worth tuppence. Yes, well, that's the very places I wish to see, I broke in. But you can't, you know, was the unfailing rejoinder. Which is not what I came to see you about, I answered brusquely, somewhat nettled by their incomprehension. Look, I'm a stranger here. "'and I want you to tell me what you know about the East End, "'in order that I might have something to start on.' "'Yes, well, we don't know anything of the East End. It, it, "'It's over there somewhere.' "'And they waved their hands vaguely in the direction "'where the sun on rare occasions might be seen to shine. "'Well, then I shall go to Cook's,' I answered. "'Ah, ah, yes,' they said with relief. Uh, "'Yes, Cook's will be sure to know.' "'But,' Oh, Cook, oh, Thomas Cook and Son, pathfinders and trail cleaners, living signposts to all the world, and bestowers of first aid to bewildered travellers, unhesitatingly and instantly, with ease and celerity. Could you send me to the darkest Africa, to your innermost Tibet? Yes, but to the east end of London— Barely a stone's throw from Ludgate Circus. Ha! You know not the way. Uh, we, we can't do it, you know, said the human emporium of roots and fares at Cook's Cheapside branch. Um, it is um, uh, so unusual. Well, consult the police, he concluded authoritatively when I had persisted. We're not accustomed to taking travellers to the East End. <laughs> uh, we received no call to take them there, and we know nothing whatsoever about the place at all. Well, never mind that, I interposed, to save myself from being swept out of the office by his flood of negations. Here's something that you can do for me. I wish you to understand in advance what I intend doing so that, in case of trouble, you may be able to identify me. Ah, I see. Should you be murdered, we would be in a position to identify the corpse. He said it so cheerfully and cold-bloodedly that, on the instant, I saw my stark and mutilated cadaver stretched out upon a slab where cool waters trickle ceaselessly, and him I saw bending over and sadly and patiently identifying it as the body of the insane American who would see East End of London? No, 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 I answered. Merely to identify me in case I get into a scrap with the bobbies. This last, I said with a thrill. <laughs> Truly, I was gripping hold of the vernacular here. 
Well, that, he said, is a matter for the consideration of the chief office. It's so unprecedented, you know, he said apologetically. The man of the chief office hemmed and hawed. Uh, we make it a rule, he exclaimed, to give no information concerning our clients. Yes, but in this case, I urged, it is the client who is requesting you to give the information concerning himself. Again, he hemmed and hawed. Uh, of course, I hastily anticipated, I know it is unprecedented, but... Well, as I was about to remark, he went on steadily, it is unprecedented, and I don't think that we can do anything for you. However, I departed with the address of a detective who lived in the East End, and who took my way to the American Consulting General. And there, at last, I found a man with whom I could do business. There was no hemming and hawing, no lifted brows, no open incredulity or blank amazement. In one minute, I explained myself and my project, which he accepted as a matter of course. In the second minute, he asked my age, height and weight, and looked me over. And in the third minute, as we shook hands at the parting, he said, All right, Jack, I remember you, and I'll keep track. I breathed a sigh of relief. Having burnt my ships behind me, I was now free to plunge into that human wilderness which nobody seemed to know anything about. But at once I encountered a new difficulty in the shape of my cabbie, a grey-whispered and eminently decorous personage who had imperturbably driven me for several hours about the city. Uh, "'Drive me to the East End,' I ordered, taking my seat. Uh, "'Where, sir?' he demanded with frank surprise. Uh, to the East End. Uh, anywhere. Go on. The handsome pursued an aimless way for several minutes, and then came to a puzzled stop. The aperture above my head was uncovered, and the cabman peered down perplexedly at me. Uh, I say, he said, uh, what place do you, you want to go then? The East End, I repeated. Nowhere in particular. Just drive me around anywhere. But what's the address, sir? See here, I thundered, drive me down to the east end at once. It was evident he did not understand, but he withdrew his head, and grumblingly he started his horse. Nowhere in the streets of London may one escape the sight of abject poverty, while five minutes' walk from almost any point will bring one to a slum. But the region that my hansom was now penetrating was one unending slum. The streets were filled with a new and a different race of people. Short of stature and of wretched and beer-sodden appearance, we rolled along through miles of bricks and squalor. From each cross street and alley flushed long vistas of bricks and misery. Here and there lurched a drunken man or woman, and the air was obscene with sounds of jangling and squabbling. At a market, Tottery old men and women were searching in the garbage thrown in the mud for rotten potatoes, beans and vegetables, while little children clustered like flies around a festering mass of fruit, thrusting their arms to their shoulders into the liquid corruption and drawing forth morsels but partially decayed, which they devoured on the spot. 
not a handsome did I meet with in all my drive. While mine was like an apparition from another and better world, the way the children ran after it and alongside. And as far as I could see, they were solid walls of brick, the slimy pavements and the screaming streets, and for the first time in my life, the fear of the crowd smote me. It was like the fear of the sea, and the miserable mutilous, muta, um, multitudes, street upon street, seemed so many waves of vast and malodorous sea lapping about me and threatening to well up and over me. Stepney, sir, Stepney Station, Cab called down. I looked about. It was really a railroad station, and had driven, he'd driven desperately to it as the one familiar spot which he'd ever heard of in all that wilderness. Well, I said. He spluttered unintelligibly, shook his head, and looked very miserable. Well, I'm a stranger here, he managed to articulate, and if you don't want Stepney Station, well, I'm blessed if I don't know what you do want. I'll tell you what I want, I said. You drive along and keep your eye out for a shop where old clothes are sold. Now, when you see such a shop, drive right on till you turn the corner, and then stop and let me out. I could see that he was growing dubious of his fare, but not long afterwards he pulled to the curb and informed me that an old clothes shop was to be found a bit of the way back. "'What you pay me?' he pleaded. "'There's seven and six of my owing me.' <laughs> "'Yes,' I laughed. "'I think it'll be the last I'll see of you.' "'Lord glammy. "'But it'll be the last I'll be seeing of you if you don't pay me,' he retorted. But a crowd of ragged onlookers had already gathered around the cab, and I laughed again and walked back to the old clothes shop. Here the chief difficulty was in making the shopman understand that I really and truly wanted old clothes. But after fruitless attempts to press upon me new and impossible coats and trousers, he began to bring to light heaps of old ones, looking mysterious the while and hinting darkly. This he did with the palpable intention of letting me know that he had piped my lay, in order to bulldoze me through fear of exposure into paying heavily for my purchase. A man in trouble or a high-class criminal from across the water was what he took my measure for. In either case, a person anxious to avoid the police. But I disputed with him over the outrageous difference between prices and values, till I quite disputed him of the notion. And he settled down to drive a hard bargain with a hard customer. In the end, I selected a pair of stout, though well-worn trousers, a frayed jacket, and one remaining button, a pair of brogans, which had plainly seen service where coal was shovelled, a thin leather belt, and a very dirty cloth cap. My underclothing and socks, however, were new and warm, but of the sort that any American waif down in his luck could acquire in the ordinary course of events. Eh, well, I must say it's a sharp one, he said, with a counterfeit admiration, as I handed over the ten shillings finally agreed upon the outfit. Blimey, if you ain't been up and down Petticoat Lane afore now, your trousers is worth five bob to Andy Man and a docker would give you two and six for the shoes, to say nothing of the coat and the cap and new stoker singlet and other things. 
How much would you give me for them? I demanded suddenly. Well, I paid you ten bob for this lot, so I'll sell them back to you right now for eight. Come on, it's a go. But he grinned and shook his head, and though I'd made a good bargain, I was pleasantly aware that he'd made a better one. I found the cabbie and the policeman with their heads together, but the latter, after looking me over sharply and particularly scrutinising the bundle under my arm, turned away and left the cabbie to wax mutinous to himself. And not a step would he budge till I paid him the seven shillings and sixpence owing him, whereupon he was willing to drive me to the ends of the earth, apologising profusely for his insistence and explaining that one ran across rather queer customers in London town. But he drove me only to Highbury Vale in North London, where my luggage was waiting for me, and here, next day, I took off my shoes, not without regret for their lightness and comfort, and my soft grey travelling suit, and in fact all of my clothing, and proceeded to array myself in the clothes of the other and unimaginable men, who must have indeed been unfortunate to have taken part with such rags for the pitiable sums obtainable from a dealer. Inside my stoker's singlet, in the armpit, I sewed a gold sovereign, which was an emergency sum certainly of modest proportions, and inside my stoker's singlet I put myself. And then I sat down and moralised upon the fair years and fat which had made my skin soft and brought the nerves close to the surface, for the singlet was indeed rough and raspy as a hair shirt, and I am confident that the most rigorous of ascetics suffer no more than I did in the ensuing twenty-four hours. The remainder of my costume was fairly easy to put on, though the brogans, or brogues, were quite a problem. As stiff and hard as if made of wood, it was only after a prolonged pounding of the uppers with my fists that I was able to get my feet into them at all, and then, with a few shillings, a knife, a kerchief, and some brown paper and flake tobacco stowed away in my pockets, I thumped down the stairs and said good-bye to my foreboding friends. As I paused out of the door, the helper-comely middle-aged woman could not conquer a grin that twisted her lips and separated them till the throat, out of an involuntary sympathy, made the uncouth animal noises that which you are wont to designate as laughter. No sooner was I out on the streets than I was unimpressed by the difference in status affected by my clothes. All civility had vanished from the demeanour of the common people with whom I came in contact, and presto, in the twinkling of an eye, so to say, I had become one of them. My frayed and out-at-elbows jacket was the badge and advertisement of my class, which was their class. It made me like kind and in a place of fawning and too respectable attention I had hitherto to receive, I now shared with them a comradeship. The man in corduroy and dirty neckchief no longer addressed me as sir or governor. It was mate. And now, and a fine and hearty word with a tingle to it and a warmth and a gladness, which the other term did not possess. Governor. It smacks of mastery and power and high authority and tribute of the man who is under the man on top, delivered in the hope that he will let up a bit and ease his weight, 
which is another way of saying that it has an appeal for arms. This brings me to a delight which I experienced in my rags and tatters, which is denied the average American abroad. The European traveller from the States, who is not a Croesus, speedily finds himself reduced to a chronic state of self-conscious sordidness by the hordes of cringing robbers who clutter his steps from dawn till dark and deplete his pocketbook in a way that puts compound interest to the blush. In my rags and tatters I escaped the pestilence of tipping and encountered men on the basis of equality. Nay, before the day was out I turned the tables and said most gratefully, Thank you, sir, to a gentleman whose horse I held and who dropped a penny into my eager palm. Other changes I discovered were wrought in my condition by my new garb. In crossing crowded thoroughfares, I found I had to be, if anything, more lively in avoiding vehicles, and it was strikingly impressed upon me that my life had cheapened in direct ratio to my clothes. When before I inquired the way to have a policeman, I was usually asked, "'Bus or ransom, sir?' But now the query became, "'Walk all right?' Also, at the railway stations, a third-class ticket was now shoved out to me as a matter of course. But there was compensation for it all. For the first time, I met the English lower classes face to face, and I knew them for what they were. When loungers and workmen and street corners and the public houses talked with me, they talked as one man to another, and they talked as natural men should talk without the least idea of getting anything out of me but what they talked, or the way which which they talked. And when at last I made my way to the East End, I was gratified to find that the fear of the crowd no longer haunted me, because I had become part of it. The vast and malodorous sea had welled up and over me, or I had slipped gently into it, and there was nothing fearsome about it, with the one exception of the Stoker's singlet. Mm-hmm.